Well, a clutch of big domestic events uh, overshadows this podcast. There's the Nicola Sturgeon evidence to the COVID inquiry, rapidly overshadowed by the astonishing uh, resolution for the time being of the deadlock that meant no Stormont Assembly was sitting in Northern Ireland. And the incredible moment of a Republican female First Minister taking office with uh, a Democratic Unionist deputy who seems able to talk an equally um, non-partisan game in this new role. So uh, this is obvious ramifications for uh, Scotland, although nobody really seems to be looking at it that way. We discuss, we also look at the cancer news from King Charles, which I'm sure everyone sympathises with. I wonder if he's served by the breathless commentary that comes from people with nothing much new to say on it. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi chums and welcome to this, the 801st edition of the Leslie Verity podcast. <laughs> yes, I missed it last week and I knew, I looked it up and it said, <laughs> it said, oh, there we go, 800. And I thought, oh, I must remember to mention that. And lo and behold, in the, the heady excitement of, of discussing trips to Dunfries and Dundee United getting humped out of cots by Queen of the South, it went totally out of my head in the, the welter of it. But 801 episodes, Ms. Riddick. Yeah, that I know, it's pretty good. Wow. And thanks to the listener. Now, I should have looked up the name, actually, but uh, we did get one listener who kind of pointed out that 800 had just surreptitiously gone by, you know. So, yeah, uh, yeah there's, eagle, there's eagle-eyed and eared people out there by gum. And it's a weird one, actually, because, I mean, it was Chris, my ex-husband, that started up the podcast back, well, you know, I don't know what date that was, but it feels like in the mists of time you know, before really anybody took podcasts seriously. So it's a strange old one. And and thank you. My goodness, it only keeps going because you guys are listening. You yeah. know, I mean, it doesn't keep going because we're doing it. Um, you, you would you would rapidly run out of the energy to do it if nobody <laughs> yeah. was listening. So, yeah. Yeah, we could we could sit in the pub and exchange uh, uh, no alcohol laggers between us and and just talk this way between ourselves. But would be fun. They're not quite not half as interesting. You know what I mean? You can and put old sit there going, who are, who are those two idiots sitting there fulminating, ranting about yes, everything? Perhaps, on... perhaps that's what people do do. You know, so that the, I mean, there's a kind of you know there's a lot of um, empathy really in in and I mean you know everywhere I go uh, doing stuff with the film at the moment. Everybody comes up and talks about this podcast and they'll come up and say, we've listened to you and, you know, we're chums, we're pals, whatever. And what a good choice that was of yours, um, Pat, on the subscriptions and everything. So it's great. And, you, you know, it's, it's astonishing. Even people from Ireland get in touch quite regularly and, you know, from Firth of the Parish completely exiles in the Nordic mm-hmm. countries. So the the beauty of that is that if you make the slightest mistake, you will get oh, politely yeah. corrected. Actually. Yes, I'm waiting for it for this episode. Trust me on yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, but it's, it's it, the other thing that's uh, bigger on this week is where that uh, and you you said that people come up to you all the time, and there was again there was a bit of concern because yeah, I've heard about a mystery shopper, but you are now the mystery patient. Yeah, you're all in, yeah. <laughs> Blimey. Yes. I, well, do you know something? This might all not be quite related, but it might be actually. I mean, there's clearly there's something wrong and they haven't figured out what it is yet. So I was I had to cancel going to open to, to have an ultrasound thingy. Um, but they showed the film. 100 people turned up. I'm told it was very good crack. They had a very good discussion amongst themselves, 
which I almost feel like I would much rather have been there yeah. and heard that, actually, you know, than, than sort of lead the discussion, as they say. But anyway, um, and then in the end, um, I'd done an event in Montrose. Again, fabulous Montrose Playhouse, small little, I think it's two cinemas. It might even be three, actually. It's just mind-blowing in a place the size of Montrose. No offence, Montrose. But incredibly well patronised. I mean, again, sold out. Uh, the filmmaker Anthony Baxter, who's made films about Trump and uh, I can't remember the name of the one about the city in the States that basically had its water turned yuck. It's nearly come to me Flint. Um, yeah. You know, so anyway, Anthony came back from London to do a Q&A at Montrose and everything was fine. You know, they, they showed the film and that was great. And it was just on the way home. I began to feel a bit weird, actually, uh, and came back in, was freezing, tried to have a hot bath to kind of warm up. Um then about four in the morning, realised I was kind of like in massive pain, really. And there's a point where you think, mm, I don't know, what are we going to do about this? So I just decided I needed to kind of basically whip over the bridge and go to Nine Wells and just admit myself. And, you know, people say, well, you know, I tried some people that I know, lo know locally, but there's a lot of folk on holiday at the moment. Um, and the ambulance, yeah, the ambulance, I don't know, you know. I will need to be nearly dead before I call an ambulance. I don't know if you ever called an ambulance for yourself. Uh, not for myself, no. Nope. Yeah, see, that's the point. Never. So um, <laughs> everybody's different to themselves and to everybody else. You know, everyone else will go, oh, you should have called an ambulance. And they yeah, go, yeah. yeah. Have you ever called an ambulance for yourself? Right. Nope. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, that was all fine. <laughs> got, got over there. And the other thought was, I mean, this is relating to the day. This was Wednesday. I'd been up since seven o'clock in the morning doing stuff about the impending Nicola giving evidence session at the Global mm. Inquiry. There had been a power cut you know, one of it would have to be said with tedious regularity, actually, here in sunny North Fife, um, in our little bit of it anyway. So there was yeah. a power cut from 7 a.m. Well, just just enough to let me do the first of the things on whatever it was. Good morning, Scotland. Um, and then everything went off. So, you know, the electricity, the heating, more importantly, and the broadband totally vitally. So I had to write a column do a couple of things with various kind of broadcasters and I had nothing. And, uh, you know, the prognosis was 3.30 p.m. reconnection. So basically I had to hightail it to get out of here. Um, so I took everything, got out of here, got as far as the bridge, bridge shut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because it was storm, whoever it was. Now, you know, I lost track of them. I think it could have been Jocelyn, but that could Jocelyn, have just been... I think it was that, right, yeah. Was it? It could have been, yeah. you know, four or four ago. So, sort so of sitting, I basically, if you get down near the, the Firth, near the sea, uh, on our side of the Firth of Tay, you can sort of get tremendous signal just on your phone because there's excellent uh, fibre optic across Dundee to the Karsagari, so you can suck a bit of that into your phone. Um, if I'm in here in my house... This is an old stone cottage and there's almost no stones, so no signal. So anyway, uh, all I'm trying to say is I was, I was eventually ended up parked right down by the, the edge of, of the sea with the waves almost crashing over the car. I, I'm not sort of totally exaggerating, actually, because <laughs> that was the only space there was. Um, and you kind of think, mm, why do you think there was a space there? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and then trying to conduct these interviews, I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous, basically. And I just wonder where there's no point where you just go cancel, you know. Yeah. But it's just not in, you know. Yeah. So uh, I did did all that, finished it. Uh, the bridge reopened, and at that point, someone called me from the village and said, actually, they've got the power and everything back on. Back home, 
listened to the whole of Nicola Sturgeon's evidence and had been listening to snatches of it throughout the day on the phone, on apps, on all sorts of other stuff. Listening to her her evidence, I think, is just massively stressful because everything to do with that period is stressful. About what you make of her is stressful, um, I think. If if you you know if you're if you're if you're an independent supporter, you've got memories of attitudes, you've got fears of being criticised. If you even sympathise with her now, you've got the desire to be fair. Um, you've got what you're actually hearing, and you've got all of that is working, working, working through your mind, and it leaves you, as my mother would have said, limp. You know, yeah. you're just actually worn out by the whole business of trying to figure out what you think about. This and the other thing, just chuck in, is that just generally, um, what anyone could think that wasn't sort of, if you like, in the experience. I mean, how could anybody know what was reasonable to expect, really, from people in a very high-pressure position against the knowledge? And we, you know, were podcasting away, obviously, eight hundred one mm-hmm. through that entire episode and earlier. Um, that you know, the natural style for Nicola was not collegiate and was not, you know. Yeah holding the kind of power around the cabinet type thing. So everything that was being unveiled about the golden, whatever it was, triangle or whatever, um, (laughs) was just sort of beginning to, was sort of reinforcing what we've never really had opened up to us in any other way, which was confirmation about just the incredibly narrow band of of the people who who made policy. I mean, I think many of us knew this just by having lived through those years but this was actually sort of proof. So it was almost like on about, I don't know, five different levels, you're listening to this and it's you're not listening to it like somebody with no skin in the game. You know, it's not like some sort of distant abstraction. And then it's that it's COVID and, you know, thousands of people died and all of that. So to be honest, um, at the end of that, I wrote a column, banged it off, uh, got into the car, the bridge was still open thankfully. Otherwise, that would have been a, a trip round with the view of Perth. <laughs> uh, got, to, got to Montrose, did the event. It was very jolly. Came back home. And sort of like a pal of mine said, right, and do you think at the end of a day like that, you know, if you already had something kind of not really quite right, the levels of stress that you just experience in all of this are, are, are just not good for the system. They leave you they leave you in turmoil, physical turmoil, mm-hmm. which which your mind will not accept as happening because you don't want it to be true. So I sort of thought, there's a lot to that, you know. I mean, I'm sure at base there's just some, you know, plumbing bit that's wrong, basically. Oh, but you know, we if 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 things that if things if the placebo effect works, then the opposite works too. Yeah. You know, and if if you're if you're in a state of just constant anxiety about the future of the universe and particularly this little benighted country. Um, then it's not an easy trot to listen through any of this stuff. Um, and clearly it wasn't easy for her either, you know. And, and listen, I am not saying kind of Nicholas Sturgeon made me ill, but just the whole <laughs> the whole business of being re- re-immersed in this, what, mm-hmm. what we've now, has now become normal for yesers, which is to have to wrestle. That is it. It's wrestling all the time with what you believe, who you think, you know, who people seem to think was right and wrong. I mean, it's never a thing that I'm very, I don't think that's ever very useful. And what the future is, and then it's all incarnate in this moment of very high theatre, 
which has got half the blooming world watching whilst they profess not to be interested in Scottish independence. So go figure. But anyway, at the end of all of that, just to sort of cut to the chase, um, I got, I mean, I have to say, highly entertaining time. When I got in, you know, I was shaking like a leaf and, you know, fainted and stuff like that. But in the right place to be doing all that in an accident emergency, finally got admitted, got given the old painkillers, everything perked up from there. Um, got pumped full of antibiotics on a drip. Um, they figured out from a scan it wasn't appendicitis, which is what it felt like. Yeah. And um, so it could, it's an enlarged colon or something. Lots of people will have had this in the spirit of King Charles. I tell you, I have an enlarged, uh, inflamed colon. So um, I'll be back for some horrible thing where they stick a camera where the sun don't shine. <laughs> oh, jeez. No, 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 no. No, no. Don't, I know, do right. Not. So that is, this is probably why the king doesn't kind of tell you stuff about the details of what he's got. And I shouldn't be laughing about it because. No. I hope my thing is relatively, you know, trivial. Uh, and anyway, in the midst of this, I did get shunted around wards. And my God, you know, it's one of these things again. There was a, there was the first ward I was in. There were was one guy um, who wanted to go home actually to Montrose. He had got a bit of dementia and he just didn't understand why he was there. He yeah. just kept getting up, putting his coat on, putting on his slippers and just trying to sneak out of the ward. But they'd taken the car keys out of his jacket. Because he, he, they couldn't, they couldn't seem to stop him going. Yeah. And one nurse in particular walked around the central block of the ward we were in with all the wee wing bits off it for more than an hour and a half with him. I mean, it was so devoted and tender and gentle, you know. And finally, he kind of, you know, just got sleepy and they got him back into bed. The other guy beside me was it was like having a, a Scottish Father Jack. He was basically, um, he was you know, everything would be relatively quiet, and he'd suddenly shout, "Come on!" Uh, and you know and then you get mm. a very very like high volume version of everything that was mentioning what was happening with the commode oh, but God. he was very funny you know right so <laughs> i mean there's a lot of black humor in all these situations actually <laughs> and thank all i've got to say is you know i there's lots of things i didn't remember at four o'clock in the morning when i wheeled myself over there but one thing I never forget is earplugs. <laughs> you know, so thank no. God there was some. So eventually, anyway, I got um, I got discharged, uh, which is another strange thing. Is one minute you're on a drip and you've got to get disconnected to go to the loo or anything, and the next minute you're being told, "Aye, off you go then, son." You know, so at last. But I think it's because they'd figured, you know, it needed yeah. it needed an examination that couldn't happen now. There's no point in me clogging up the works, and that's very true. So Ofsky. And a woman beside me uh, said, because uh, they, they, they draw the curtain to tell you these things. But of course, you hear, you know, six people uh, mm. hear everything, which is fine, you know. But um, so th the woman opposite said, well, uh, that's amazing because I was in the high dependency unit yesterday and I'm being discharged this afternoon. <laughs> so she was being made to walk up and down the ward to sort of see if she fell right. over. Oh, <laughs> but God. she didn't fall over. Well, so, you know. Yes. It seems a bit sort of brutal and you do wonder if this is just everybody needs it. And they, clearly people need the beds. But on the other hand, I am OK to be out, you know, mm. um, I think. That's <laughs> your famous well, last words. Yeah. So it's so, so anyway, thank you for all the kind of, you know, lovely message. And I felt like I had to put something online just in case I didn't yeah. pitch up suddenly for things within the midst of all these uh, f film screenings and stuff like that. So. Phew. Gosh, this this rivals the epic bus journey to to Dumfries last week. I tell you, I mean it, <laughs> well, it does. 
Well, actually, all of it, though, probably contributes, you know, because last yeah. week was just stress and a stick one way or another with yeah. everything, you know. And the thing is, when you're younger, you just, I don't know. Oh, it, yeah. In my head, I'm taking all of this in my stride. I just move from one thing to the other. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm increasingly beginning. I mean, a friend of mine has said she even has another name for her body, self. Oh, right. Her, you know, because uh, her, <clears throat> her, her mental self is... Uh, <clears throat> is kind of one almost character. I know this sounds very schizophrenic and she is quite a funkadelic girl, but it, it does actually, you know, when I sort of thought about it and maybe people who are a bit older will appreciate this as well. When everybody says that, you know, I've got the mind of a 17 year old and the body mm-hmm. of a 400 year old or something. Um, I mean, it is kind of relevant because it, it, it does. It's almost like your brain carries you into situations which your body just can't um can't deal with and if you give the body a bit of a feeling of identity you know in in all of this it's hardly got a voice as it were then it sort of evens it up a bit so Mm. my body is now called Sinead right which is a lovely name Mm -hmm. I got yeah but I I mean it's a it's a funny kind of thing because uh yeah when when you're you're talking talking away about that I mean I have I've got distinct distinct things again with that thing I, I think I'm 17 but I'm 71 shortly to be 72 and it is that 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 comparison and it's one of the, the things that struck me was that I was uh, it's funny I was looking back images of Woodstock were on believe it or not I was watching a movie about Woodstock and there was all these beautiful young people I mean, from my particular perspective beautiful young women all dancing there who will now be well nigh 80 and the thing is that you're still in your head that person. And that's the evolving thing that's taken place over the years. When I was a young person, utterly dismissive. I mean, utterly yeah. dismissive of people uh, who are getting older. And uh, now, I mean, <laughs> many young people are utterly dismissive of me, quite correctly. But it's that that thing. You are still that person, hopefully. And just within yeah, that, th- that body is changing. Mismatch. It's the mismatch between your brain. And the other thing is, it's not just your brain sort of thinking you can do stuff that you can't do, but your brain actually just on the go all the time. Yeah. Thinking, analysing, worrying, projecting, planning. It's too, the balance is just sort of wrong. It's too much, you know, mental work as against sort of just physical stuff, you know, rest or anything else like that. I do hope Susie's listening to this because she would realise I have really taken her, her words in you know, and seriously. So anyway, yes. and and, and, and yes. all the best to King Charles in his uh, attempt yeah. to rally all yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting one because, of course, the 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 if we we're going to dwell on the finger up the bum was with the previous prostate issue, which again, men of a certain age and those of you who know him speaking have gone through this whole process. It's not as shocking as people claim, um, but it's not prostate cancer apparently. It's uh, it's some other. No unmentioned uh, form of cancer and yet yeah, good luck to him and I mean and good, good luck having you know been through as a as a family uh, with, with uh, Jill and uh, her sister who both uh, had breast breast cancer and are now, now cancer free but one of the things about it was I mean and it does irk me I mean it does and I've got that whole set it's again a separation thing you were talking about separation earlier uh, the parts of my mind saying I have the greatest sympathy and empathy for anyone going through that process. It's horrendous. Yeah, on the other hand, the, the when, when one of the commentators said today, the royal family is now going to struggle to cope with their day-to-day jobs while their father, the king, 
is uh, is going through cancer treatment. I felt like saying, yeah, like hundreds of thousands of people do every day who turn up to do real jobs, you know, to work in factories and offices and do grinding work. And that's not me being miserable, I don't think. It's just this this whole thing of this yeah, mythological royal family doing all these marvellous things. This is a man going through cancer. It's appalling. But do not set this up as a as an example of how wondrous the royal family is and a great job they do. And I realise there will be whole sections of the community, probably people who don't listen to this podcast, who would be absolutely shocked and appalled that I'd be bringing that up and think I was small minded and mean. But no, that that just struck me as being, you know, typical of the ideology surrounding the royal family. Right. But your your, your piece on well, Nicola. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, you, oh I've, you're I've gonna... got thoughts on that. Oh, um, yeah, because, you know, I, I, I do think there's a the, the trouble is that um, every sort of big event that befalls or, you know, good event um, that, that happens to the royal family just places a really sharp sort of focus on the fact that coverage of it is basically 1950s style. Yeah. So, we're you know, this is we've got this. He's got cancer. That's rubbish. Um, you know, the, the the level of and now we move to, you know, somebody standing at Buckingham Palace yeah. who can only report that nothing has happened and that the place is full of other foreign reporters who are waiting for something to happen. But nothing has happened. Um, so that that's the beginning of it. Uh the, the, the other sort of news angle is that we have to brace ourselves for the fact the king will not be visible for, you know, let's say four yeah. or five months. I mean, I'm sorry, mates, but he's not visible, you know. I mean, to normal people, especially in Scotland, he's not visible. I wouldn't know what he's doing. I mean, I'm not suggesting he's not doing anything. But this question of everybody goes, oh, my God, it would, you know, if the sun's not visible, yeah, we all we all die, you know, if... If other things, I'm trying to think what in life would be, you know, in your own micro community, if some people are not visible, then that's yep. noticeable and it, it hits you in your family or whatever else, very possibly in our public life or whatever. You know, we notice people passing, Ian Lavender yesterday, yeah. um, and sort of have fond thoughts about Dad's Army. Maybe this is not the same because we're only talking about an illness. And there's the point that we're being given a news hierarchy that suggests the most important thing to everybody today is that the king will not be visible when he's not already visible anyway in their lives. And it's a lie. You know, it's it's a lie that this is for normal people, that the royal family are beacons of anything. Yeah. So uh, th- this is it's the same. It strikes me. And this, you know, we've we've obviously got into the offensive territory completely here. So. I mean, after you and your swearing last week and everything, Pat Joyce, you know, but <laughs> yes. quoting herself. But anyway, um, it's like the football, you know, when when there's when there's sort of, you know, when England's in the World Cup. I mean, you know, it's not so much just although gosh, why did I embark on this with football with you? Oh, but anyway. God, God. oh there's more to come. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. But, you know, it's a part of it might be, let's face it, a sort of basic kind of struggle to kind of support England as a team although the last team, you know, and its manager were, you know, cut above. But it's the blooming coverage. You know, it's that you get everything 1966 and you get, you know, world supremacy and just the constant bumping of every tiny thing about the team is heading the UK headlines. And this thing is happening and doesn't help, actually. Charles, with all of this, and there's there's a sort of other narrative being threaded through it, 
And it's true that, you know, if he's public about what's going on with him, then, you know, there's been apparently after the prostate thing, there was a a thousand percent increase in men seeking information about prostate cancer or examinations and so on. Um, So presumably people will feel, well, if the king can have cancer, although, you know, I don't know quite why they're not naming it, but still, whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, then people will feel right. We can say the word. There it is, you know, and uh, and that's fine. It's just that just do if you want, then do those things. It's not news until there's more news about what his condition is. And then it's news just in a line of what it is. That's a shame. And then we move on. You know, it's just this dwelling on everything um, like the coronation. You know, it's just it was a massive overwrought, overblown thing, which depended upon you buying into it's either empty pomp and ceremony that costs you, the taxpayer, five million quid or uncounting, um, or a belief that it was really important that people you don't know and don't race and didn't elect and don't even go to the same religion as, even if you have any religion at all yeah. in Scotland, which you don't. Um, these people are stacking out a cathedral you rarely visit, and there you are, you know. Um, other countries just get, as we've seen with the Danes, get mm-hmm. the new lot to just turn up in Parliament, swear an oath, go out, wave at a balcony, have a cup of tea, go home. <laughs> yeah. So it's all the overblownness of all of this that doesn't really help them. And yet <clears throat> they're trapped in it. You know, to go back to Tom Nairn's analysis of that and the enchanted glass, um, the, the, the monarchy has to be in Britain about 10 times its natural size because that's what convinces everyone we're unique. So we're living through a sort of... Um, Symbolism also that's happening with this, you know, ailment, poor old King, King Charles, is is symbolic because the, the monarchy is so strongly symbolic of a British state that used to have power trappings, you know, uh, all the rest of it, <clears throat> and is now sort of slowly losing all of that. And he is kind of, unfortunately for him, sort of stuck in the middle of embodying much of this. So I, I, I don't think it's, you sort of listen to the King Charles business at one level, and then I've just had to switch the, the radio off because yep. I can't listen to half an hour of people. You know, I've got stuff now about, you know, it's good for people to pitch up early and, you know, yeah. all, all that sort of stuff. Now, you can't do that again. That's enough, everybody. Enough, 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 really. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I, my mind is, 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 again, spoke about Ella, my mind's going about 20 or different directions at this point of, of things that, that, that we're going to cover today. But the, the symbolism aspect of it sprang to mind. And um, the symbol, and the, the, during the COVID inquiry, uh, the details of the uh, State of the Union poll, which was this significant, I think, six and a half thousand people in all four corners of the UK that they undertook three surveys and of course we, we, we focus on the it, it can be seen that the one of the focuses was that 56% of Scottish voters said they would vote yes 44% would vote no if should Scotland be an independent country and there are all ramifications about when the referendum should be heard but one of the key things that, again that, 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 that arises from that that whole concept and why, possibly why this narrative of the unifying feature of the royal family is being pushed uh, is the fact of uh, they, they suggest that cultural and demographic change are mitigating against the union Scottish separatism 
you know, got the member where this is coming from, is being fueled by a rising Scottish identity, which is distinct from and in some ways oppositional to Britishness and perceived the direction of the UK is antithetical to Scottish values. And I think that's what one of the things that, that, that you touched on there is this fact of that the, the royal family is central to that notion of Britishness, whatever that that means. And in order to be British, you have to have respect for the royal family. And we can see that coming through with the use of the union flag now in this wrapping themselves in patriotism the Labour Party is doing. And part of that is is the royal family. And I don't know if you've managed to have a, a chance to have a look at the, any of the, the detail, uh, the other detail contained within uh, within the State of the Union, uh, Paul Leslie. No, no, that's where I've, I've got a whole lot of uh, Joker cards here, and I think I was in the middle of not being with it at that point. So, gone yourself. All right, but yeah, what what they're actually saying there that uh, what again? But to go back to it, I think that must have been the shockwave that ran through the the Conservative Party and the UK government when they actually saw this this majority. When, when was it done? This was done in the middle of COVID. This was uh, yeah, uh-huh. twenty twenty, and. Yeah. Uh, Again, we have this whole thing of the emphasis that they were going to, what they said they had to do, uh, uh, they said this was volatile though, and it was volatility dependent upon events. So uh, at the point where uh, Nicholas Sturgeon is being questioned about the Alex Salmond allegations, support for independence still outstripped support for remaining within the United Kingdom, but the margin dropped, I think, about seven points. So the volatility, particularly driven it said it among low turnout groups, and I think this is an important point that people involved in the, the, the future driven election camp and the future striving for Scottish Independence should take notice. Volatility is particularly driven by low turnout groups, such as 18 to 25 year olds. Now, and they're six times more likely to be yes voters than those over 65, female voters and working class voters. And the SNP division was seeding doubt about independence at the exact moment that they said that vaccines are demonstrating the benefits of partnership within the union. And they say support for another Scottish referendum is highly contingent upon events. And no one was looking for it at that point uh, until they felt that COVID was going to be over. And what they say is that the best way for the UK government to inadvertently boost support for independence, wait for this, would be to refuse a referendum outright. And the best way for the Scottish government to boost support for the union would be to hold a unilateral vote. So I think both sides are going to have to have a good look at themselves there. But I, I, I do think if you've got both the Labour Party and the, the Conservative Party saying there's not going to be another referendum, from the analysis that's been done in that uh, uh, that polling, that is the best way to inadvertently, as they say, boost support for Scottish independence. Um, and one of the other aspects of it is that... Uh, the vast majority, believe it or not, of Conservative voters, 91%, want a referendum postponed after 2023. Now, what they did Sorry, at this take, point... Take, say that more slowly. Yeah. You just, so 91% the vast 9% of Tories want, uh, never want a referendum or want it postponed until 2023. 72% of Labour want it uh, never or postponed. And 80% of Liberal Democrats want it postponed until 23 or never. However... When they split that into pre and post 2024, which you're at now, 
the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrat Party has become considerably less united, with 49% of Labour voters wanting a referendum before 2024. Before? So that, yeah, before 2024. But again, that's the ramifications, because this was conducted X number of years ago and just coming to light now. And I think that, that this should be essential reading. And that's just the, I mean, that's just the first five or six pages of it that I, I went through. It's a, it's a very dense document. But those are those are the key aspects. And what they also said that this was going to be fought, any future uh, strife for the union would be fought through the heart, not the head. So that's their analysis of it and the volatility. So I think these are these are major points that any uh, people who believe in Scottish independence, in particular the SNP, ought to be going through this document forensically because it's it's um it's useful to mine for all the things that it says within that framework. And it goes back to something we spoke about umpteen times before, is getting the vote out, particularly amongst the working class voters and 18 18 to about 30 odd voters who are the most likely to support Scottish independence. It then gets gets one to think if 49% of Labour voters in Scotland support independence, in the current situation, are they going to vote Labour? Will they vote Labour? And what will Labour's offering be to them within that framework, given the rolling back they've already done on the Gordon Brown constitutional reforms on, say, the reform of the House of Lords. And yeah. then that, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but no, no, no. Before we roll on to that, though, I mean, the reason mm-hmm. I was asking you just when that was all conducted is because <clears throat> in, in many in many senses, we're, you know, <laughs> events definitely do affect everything. So a small event um, affecting a working class woman from Belfast that uh, became the first yes. Republican First Minister of, of Northern Ireland has totally boosted this argument differently all over again. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, just just by the by, I would think that, you know, relying on events either way to, yeah. to sort of make a case or, or defeat it is the, just is useless. You know, events may tip you over the edge, but you've just got to behave in life as if you're planning something and you're planning it very solidly mm-hmm. and you're planning to inspire and correct big, ongoing, endless problems. And events will just come along and perhaps give you that last little boost over the line. But still, um, I mean, that event, I think, has been pretty seismic, actually, mm-hmm. uh, with Michelle O'Neill. And I mean, the day that it was uh, that day after she was sworn in and even <laughs> I know this is such a wee thing, actually, but listening to I have sort of got to tidy up my accent sometimes. But uh, there's, there's a word she talked about, par sharing. And she didn't. The great thing about her is most of the prods, me included, have probably had that elocuted out of her vocabulary. Whereas she spoke, you know, and for her, maybe that is a tidied up version of Michelle O'Neill. I haven't heard her speak enough to know. And by God, we're going to hear more of her a lot. Um, But she she is she comes across very much as the real deal already, which is good for her. And funnily enough, shades of Nicola Sturgeon in the sense of she's just a, a little bundle of powerful energy but anyway um that day and in fact it was another listener sent this to me um simon jenkins who is no great supporter mm-hmm. of uh, independence wrote a column in the in the uh, guardian basically saying northern ireland will leave the union and scotland could too true devolution is the only way to save it and the thing that's really quite astonishing about it um is that he's looking at the end and saying that uh, basically 
and I'm quoting from it here, by size and economic potential, Scotland should be as rich and independent as Ireland or Denmark. Ireland shook off its reliance on the UK and became a Celtic tiger. Scotland could do the same. The next British government should start by tearing up the Barnett formula and devolving real power, fiscal power to Scotland. His theory is that if we didn't have, you know, the subsidy that comes from Westminster, we'd all catch a grip and realise how much the union matters and how useless we are on our own and so on. But still, that's his prognosis, that if there isn't full tax power devolved to Scotland, the game's a bogey. And here's the final line of it. Otherwise, we should welcome the future Denmark of the British Isles. Now, thanks, Simon. Magic, you know. I mean, that's a that's a hell of a compliment, given that Denmark is a powerful little economy whose GDP is regularly a third higher than Britain's, and they are the happiest people on the planet very often, you know. Uh, Scotland becoming that future Denmark, oof, I think I'd take that with kind of, you know, I'd take that in a big, big way. All of this flows from that moment in Northern Ireland. Um, I mean, as Simon Jenkins is relating it, he's looking at this and, and seeing... Um, that the UK is the only Western European state whose unity is unstable, except for possibly Spain. Correct. Um, well, Belgium, you could throw in if you really wanted to mm -hmm. know your small countries, but never mind. Um, and he's saying, oh, you know, and, and we've had it extensively, uh, open, properly in some astonishing moments, um, investigated on BBC Radio, etc. Uh, almost half of Northern Irish voters expect to rejoin the rest of Ireland within 20 years. And so he's got the list and nearly 60% of Scots want some form of independence. See, picking up the last polls, even in Wales, independence favoured by a third. In all cases, younger voters most eager for a breakup of the UK. There it is. That's the, that's the size of everything here. And it's taken the event of Michelle O'Neill's becoming first minister uh, to, to, to sort of trigger an acceptance, really, of where we are. Although... Is there an acceptance in wider respects? Because yes. you listen to all this stuff happening about Northern Ireland, and I can't remember if it was you or some another friend who'd sort of pointed out that uh, there was lots of talk about <clears throat> having a, a you know somebody at the helm of of, uh, of a government in Northern Ireland who wanted to uh, work towards the breakup of the United Kingdom. He thought, I don't know if you've not noticed for us, <laughs> what is it, 14, 17 years or something here? Yeah. But it's almost like the you know the, the there's there's one there's one kind of little conch you get you know in the United Kingdom you don't get everybody managing to do this simultaneously and because Scotland's looking a bit wabbit it's kind of passed over to Northern Ireland so they've got it now and <laughs> you know the attention is you can't expect yeah. all of you to get attention at once you can't expect apart from you know writers who see and I'm sure people privately understand that the ripple effect of all this is clear and it's just there in all the statistics if you bother to look at it but the way it's covered is very much <clears throat> Scotland you know Hamza will get covered if he talks about Gaza Northern Ireland are the kind of you know woo kind of kids on the block lots of people have sympathy for the idea of uh, of kind of reunification almost outrunning in some respects the appetite you know um, in Northern Ireland for that amongst unionist communities but when it comes to Scotland it's just completely different <laughs> so it's so it as a moment and an event um it has really shone all sorts of it's like a kind of prism because it's shining lights but refracted lights in different ways around this argument yeah, I mean, just picking up on that, Mike Small uh, wrote a, a very interesting wee article in Bella Caledonia, small in terms of number of words, but very insightful about mm -hmm. this whole different perspective that uh, was taken 
taking place. I mean, and it was Susanna Reid, for whom I've got a lot of time, Richard Maidley, for whom I've got no time whatsoever. But when interviewing Chris Heaton-Harris, the, the current Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, uh, where he turned around and said in the, the, the command paper, predicted that down to recent polling, that uh, conditions for a Bourne poll are unlikely to be objectively met for decades to come. Because it is within the purview of the uh, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to declare that there are the circumstances that that, that should lead to 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 an, a, a border poll. Now these have never been made clear, like very very cleverly, not done in the Good Friday Agreement. Lots of things were left that were left unsaid. So there's no nothing there that says when when the Secretary of State should regard the conditions as being correct. So opinion polls, apparently a Catholic majority in a census. Now that's not. That's not entirely correct. A Catholic majority, not everybody who's a Roman Catholic would actually vote for uh, reunification. A nationalist majority in Northern Ireland Assembly or a vote by a majority in the Assembly. But they emphasised to Chris Heaton-Harris at every stage, hang on, it's up to the people of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to, to have a border poll. It's not up to the... It's not up to you. It's up to the people of Northern Ireland. It kept going back to the Good Friday Agreement. He says, and compare and contrast with this fact that they're turning around and talking about the democratic right of the people of Ireland to decide there's going to be a, a reunited Ireland, and the complete disregard because yeah. you've had you've had your tea pals, because it's we we say no, and it's very very different. Yeah, it is, and it, you know it's hard to escape that Northern Ireland, whether it wants it or not, has got Ireland as a as a chum. Yeah. And because Ireland is a chum of the EU, there's a serial chumming going on there, um, basically to sort of support the importance of that relationship. You'd also have to say that Northern Ireland is still a potentially a tinderbox and it's yeah. within living memory, whereas Scotland isn't. So, you know, then that's these are not good democratic lessons for anybody to kind of be learning, except definitely being out on your own and not having the formal links of chummingness that the, the Irish have. I think there's a lot of support for us in Europe, um, but but there's not a formal set of links and we're not getting that feeling of where you're not alone in this sort of thing and you matter. But the other yeah. thing is um, everything underpinned by international law. I mean, I was listening to one interview and it's been great to hear a whole series of new um, commentators and so on from Northern Ireland on. There's some tremendous women commentators as well. And one of them, you know, when she was asked, people were kind of going immediately, they're thinking about the border poll and they're thinking, well, you know, would it be fair to have a constitutional change? Of course, you know, everybody's throwing Brexit around on the basis of just 50 percent plus mm -hmm. one as a majority. And she basically replied and said, well, it's actually written into uh, the international agreement of the yep. Friday agreement, 50 percent plus one. And if you wanted to change that, you know, then you'd actually have to be, re you know, bringing all the parties together to change that. And that's not going to happen. And he just moved on. <laughs> that was yeah. the end of it. So it's, it's, it, it's the extraordinary difference then that there is between having had all the way along the line, having had this thing embedded international law. And this is another thing that should tell everybody why the Tories cavalier, oh, do we want to be bound by human rights conventions? They're so boring and we mm -hmm. can't get, you know, frightened people to Rwanda. Uh, you know, we don't need the constraints of this, that and the next thing. This is what the presence of the rule of law in certain circumstances will leave you, which is a, a set of entitlements as a group of people that cannot be taken away from you, even by the worst BAMs uh, in Westminster that we've seen for since the last set, you know. So 
for sure. The other thing that strikes me in it is, um, you know, so then there's been a lot of talk about whether people in the Republic would actually want to have reunited yeah. Ireland. And obviously, I mean, having spoken, there was an Irish nurse actually in the ward. So, that you know, we were having a talk about that. Uh, you know, the, the, her, her main thing is still just from her age group as well is housing. And clearly that's mm -hmm. a big thing. You know, it's internal problems for the Irish about these things is what's driving support for Sinn Féin. It's not primarily support for a united Ireland. But, you know, the, the Irish are no slouches when it comes to trying to look at constitutional things in a sort of much longer term yeah. way. And I would be astonished if, I mean, what would have to happen? Yeah, they've sort of put forward polls that suggest that there's, you know, there's definitely support majority for reunification. If you suggest that you're going to have to change the flag, you're going to have to change, mm -hmm. you know, potentially, well, I don't know, you might have to change pretty much everything, except obviously Northern Ireland would be swept into EU membership, so that condition would stay. Um, then people begin to go, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know if, you know, we we'll like the flag and we just, you know, we don't want to change these things. Um, clearly, in the absence of any reality of thinking about what that would mean, you know, little things can just look like, you know, unduly massive obstacles. But what would have to happen, I think, is that Ireland would have to consider becoming a federal country. And yes. that might, yeah. given that it's based on six ancient counties anyway, um, that might not be so difficult. Although, you know, there's, there's other countries that are that size that haven't quite got that level of decentralisation. But, you know, give it to a citizens' assembly. Yeah. And I'm sure that's what they would do. So, you're listening to these kind of, you know, I don't know. You know, I was brought up in an environment where news was supposed to be incredibly important. And you hear it increasingly failing to do the the, the job because what all it's doing is taking, you know, just bites out of the side of something. And you're not really getting what's liable to be happening with thinker, thinkers who've got a longer term view on the whole thing a lot of the time. So anyway, I just do think, though, that that has been quite an extraordinary moment. I mean, they all moved. They all went to Belfast. Everybody was standing there outside Stormont, you know, in whatever weather it was. <laughs> you got to laugh, really, because, I mean, I don't think that's it. They didn't used to come to Northern Ireland until something had, you know, been it blown up. badly wrong, yeah. Um, and now, so it's great. It is a moment and we'd be criticising them if they hadn't paid it due attention and so on. But of course, as with everything, most Scots will, I think, be watching the coverage of everything and realising where we are in that pecking order. And it is nowhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, Rishi Sunak, I mean, just I think he was in Northern Ireland. He, And I think I just read something interesting about uh, Michel Odio's speech um, before I move on to what Sunak said was the fact she referred to uh, the north of Ireland. She also referred to Northern Ireland. She then went on to say whether you regard yourself as British, whether you regard yourself as Irish, whether you regard yourself as both, whether you regard yourself as neither. And that was vitally important. And it was a similar uh, type of speech of Emma Little Pengelly. And both of these women come from families who are heavily involved in both uh, Republican and Loyalist paramilitary. So, you know, these are women who have grown up within that framework and come from that background and manage to talk about conciliation and working together. And just as a wee bit of advice for Chris Heaton Harris, I don't think either of them need to be told by you what they should be concentrating on. Mm. You know, don't, don't, yeah. don't take, take a telling. Um, I mean, they tried, they tried to whip up the thing about, you know, in, in terms of 
Michelle O'Neill's careful choice of words. Uh, you know, this thing of, um, uh, you know, reunification is within touching distance. Yeah. Which was actually originally said by Mary Lou MacDonald. Exactly. Which, <clears throat> which was carefully, that was her, because that's her shout, if you like, as Sinn Féin leader over in the Republic. And not said by Michelle O'Neill in her nope. speech. Uh, she was on something later. And of course, everybody keeps pushing her about it because surprise, surprise, the clues in the name of the blooming. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, I mean, she had to concede because it would have been like Colin White, Black and Black White. That clearly she did think that this was on the cards. And bang, that quote from Mary Lou MacDonald, you know, the 10 years in touching distance has just been transposed absolutely to Michelle O'Neill. But. I don't know. I mean, you'd like to think people, you know, who are over there <clears throat> are just watching a lot more carefully how she kind of conducts herself. It did mm -hmm. remind me actually very much of Nicola Sturgeon after COVID, uh, the Brexit vote, when she really her first instinct was to reach out to Europeans in Scotland and say, you're welcome here. You know, yeah. this is your home. If you've met at your home, this is your home. And she was the only person who said that. And I've met so many people that were almost in tears hearing that said to them. So this question of reaching out is essential. It's it's what you have, you know, it's the, these these kind of roles is one of the important ones that they do is setting the pace of something for, for the public um, to think, you know, you're setting a pace and as a standard of debate. Of course, it won't be upheld in all or even sometimes many occasions. But, you know, the calmer you are about it and the more respectful you are of all the traditions there are in your country. Yes. Um, and you're quite right that your other woman, whose name I have not got properly into my head yet, but she's conducting herself actually really carefully mm -hmm. as well without yes. abandoning who she is. You know, yeah. so it, it's like, I mean, they've been described as the Chuckle Sisters. I mean, dear knows if they actually get on the same way that Paisley and McGuinness seem to really yes. actually strangely get on. Um, it's also true, I remember from <clears throat> from dealing a lot with David Irvine, the, pro the progressive unionist, yeah, that he, he very much thought, sorry? There was a man. Yes. Um, you know, that he very much thought that the people who had the most ability to compromise had actually been on the most extreme wings of paramilitary organisations partly because they'd been banged up enough. And obviously that doesn't relate to these women, but as you say, in their family history, um, they'd been banged up long enough to sort of begin to think about the pointlessness of the whole exercise and really resolve themselves to educate themselves, which is what happened to uh, both uh, him and to you know some of, some of the people on the other side, such that Jerry Adams came to his funeral. Shouldn't have been possible. So, you know, and the people who are stuck in the middle, um, you know, who hadn't gone through the, the sort of extreme experience of being banged up in the maze and all that kind of, you know, isolation, your life disappearing mm -hmm. off, perhaps hadn't had that process, you know, of thinking through. Now, this could be irrelevant because these women haven't had that direct experience themselves. But it's, you know, it's almost like the world needs some heroes and I suppose we're kind of trying to make these two that, you know, yeah. where you'd hope that that's true. It's a burden as well because they're still themselves and we don't know how they get on behind the scenes. They might really dislike each other intensely. Um, but for the moment, and this is always when people talk about Gaza and Israel, I'm not suggesting that we're going to, you know, they're going to teach the world to sing with Netanyahu on one side and Hamas and all the escalation on the other and the dabblings, in fact, major dabblings of the superpowers, you know, kind of crisscrossing the whole thing. 
you get some people that walk come forward at a certain moment and they do make things seem possible you know which we've got to think we've got to think this is possible to to fix and move on before i go back to what sunak said uh, i've just to say there is i said i was going to talk about football here and this is not being light-hearted about it right i've got the I, got the blooming clock stopwatch on yeah, you now well because one of the issues that may actually be the most difficult to cope with is the the future of Casement Park, which has been scheduled to be redeveloped for the 2028 Euros as part of the UK-Ireland bid, which was successful. Now, Casement Park is the home of Antrim GAA, that's for Gaelic football and for hurling. And you've got to have over 30,000 capacity in order to to be a ground for, for the Euros. And this has proved a dividing line that's taken place within the Irish Football Association, which is the, the Northern Irish Association, and with, between the political parties. Because this is a Casement Park's in Dublin. Casement Park is in Belfast. In Belfast? Sorry. How do I not yes. know that? That's, that's what all right. Croke Park's, okay. Park's in Dublin. Yes, that's what but I'm mixing them that's up. It, right. that's Just all in right. case anybody else is, though, as well. You know. <laughs> right, so Casement Park's in, uh, it's in a, a Republican area of uh, of Belfast as the it's the home of Antrim GAA and that's the one that's been chosen for development and this was passed way back in 2012 I think it was the money was put aside and of course with these things it's now gone from about 70 million to 100 million to do it and the communities minister uh, who's going to be in charge of whether whether this goes ahead or not and the man responsible is Gordon Lyons who's an MLA for the DUP and this will be a test case because, as people may or may not be aware, mm-hmm. soccer, as it's referred to in Ireland, in, in the north of Ireland, in Northern Ireland, is very much associated with the Protestant Unionist Loyalist community. And if anyone in, in the north of Ireland, Northern Ireland, su- follows international football, particularly in that area of Belfast, they will f- support the Republic of Ireland. So this is going to be an issue that's going to have to be dealt with. And it's the symbolism of this and it's the importance of this. And it's one just to keep an eye on because, as I say, I'm not being lighthearted about it when I refer to football and refer to this whole development process that's going to take place. It's both a economic and financial decision that's going to have to be taken places should they be spending 100 million on it and secondly it is a, a cross community issue which which may lead to opening up fissures that people do not wish to be opened up in that coalition government mm-hmm. yeah and that's just the first of them <laughs> so yes know, yeah it'll come in every day now and that's the other thing because i mean some of this inference that they've been given a bung of 3.3 billion i keep trying to look for this and haven't quite found it yet but i think that's the delayed payments that have yeah. been a result of not being able to make decisions because you needed a minister that's right so that the civil servants have been able to keep a couple of things going but you keep getting to a point where it's almost like you know the boss needs to sign it off ain't no boss ain't no sign off ain't no spending so, yeah. you know, there's been an accumulation of stuff they're due because it's their blooming taxes that yeah. have gone into the kitty that's come back out to fuel things. Now, fair enough, they're saying, well, we need more, actually. And, you know, that's that's absolutely now that they're up and at it. <laughs> this is what you get, you know, is some useful lobbying uh, over all sorts of problems, because, you know, the, and here we are again. There's a lot of sympathy for that because they'll say, yeah, you know, the, the state of our NHS and everything like that, they're mm-hmm. pretty much saying is Westminster's fault. If anybody tries to say that in Scotland, you Ooh. know. <laughs> so, yes, it's it's kind of all go. 
Yeah. So anyway, but, I interrupted you though yeah, on the labour business. You you yeah. drifted into that, and I feel like yeah. Well, should... I was going to say about Sunak, but before people in Scotland turn out, you're desperate to talk about Sunak. I'm going to get it in because yeah, exactly. Because why? Uh, yeah, because why? Because oh well, number one, that Piers Morgan bet they put on just I thought you couldn't plumb any oh, God, more yes, debts. Yes, yes, yes. And then, but, no, but to you, turn, you need to yeah. tell people what that is in case they. Well, what's it. happened is that he was on the Piers Morgan show, and Piers Morgan bet him a thousand pounds they wouldn't get anybody on planes to Rwanda before uh, the general election, and Sunak. <sighs> Sooking up to the big boys as he would do in the playground, Shuki Sander went, yes, I'll take that bet on. I mean, how, I mean, just grease piece. I mean, it's just appalling to bet, appalling to even think that low when you're actually dealing with human beings' lives, you know. Yeah. yeah. So and I think actually that is it's it's interesting what what moves Hamza Yusuf to tweet about stuff because he's very much picking up the the sort of human rights kind of things that he tends to uh, you know, but he he tweeted exactly that and just sort of said, you know, every time you think you've reached a low, you're kind of, right. you know, you're sort of astonished by by what's happened. Um, and uh, yeah, that's been retweeted 10,000 times where he said the PM is quite literally gambling on people's lives. This Tory yeah. UK government always finds a way of degrading itself further. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it is just appalling. It's like everything's turned into uh, a kind of you know is is like a game show format yes there's been yep. there's been a lot of you know since he's revealed he's got this 36 hour fasting thing there's all sorts of poor old journalists have been sent on what's it like to do a 36 hour fast i mean clearly for people who you know as a profession used to exist on black coffee and fags you know i mean okay the fags are probably gone now but i think the coffee's probably still there yeah. and whatever um, people are finding this really quite hard. You know, I should say the fast food because fags and black coffee, you'd get through a fast like that. Uh, but, you know, everybody's kind of complaining and saying that by the time you get to about 24 hours, whichever way you start it, you're basically hallucinating. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that would might explain it. You know? <laughs> and they're all beginning to go, hmm, somebody actually sat and looked at the, 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 the timing of the things that he'd done that are just bonkers. And that thing he did where he did that weird video in Christmas, you know, Christmas oh God, when he was no. home alone yeah. was on Monday night, right? Which is his 24 hours into his fast. Anyway, laddie da. Well, it's like it's like Thatcher and her. Uh, I only survived and was it three or four hours sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and look that what one. you did, girl. Look, you yeah. Know, be proud. Yeah. And meanwhile, back to Labour and Gaza. I'm going to begin with, and I always hesitate to do this to give this shape-shifting grifter any publicity whatsoever. But I noticed that George Galloway has decided to revisit his glorious I'm standing in by elections for various political parties past a revisit because he's now decided to stand in Rochdale as the what party is it now? It's the Workers' Party. That's supposed to he won the by-elections in uh, for the Respect Party, and then he had his All for Unity Party, which lasted from 2020 to 2022 when he was up here. And he was quite happy to associate and stand by all these extreme right-wing conservatives. But George is now going to stand in Rochdale. And possibly this is on the basis of the fact he's read the research by Servation for the Labour Muslim Network showing that 43% of Muslims would vote Labour out of sample, which had backed the party at the level of 58% at the last election. And uh, their main concern, Gaza. Mm. And what impact has that had on the Labour Party? 
Well, it appears that they've now done, they're now trying to face both ways simultaneously yet again, that having given interviews to the Jewish Chronicle, we say they would only, they would no longer unilaterally recognise the existence of a Palestinian state. This has to be the agreement of uh, the Israeli government, which we know has got no way, shape or form, any interest from top to bottom throughout society in, in recognising a two-state solution. Labour is running absolutely scared on this and is now trying to reverse its position on that, along with the other vault facets that they've done in the past few months, while they still retain this uh, almost unassailable lead in the opinion polls. Yeah, I suppose it, <clears throat> it does depend how much people have decided they want a new suit or whether they start to kind of look <laughs> at the lapels and think, actually, yeah. I'm really suited a double breasted suit, but this is a new suit. Um, so, because there's all the other stuff that, you know, the House of Lords stuff drifting off, yep. off, off. Um, you know, now it's going to be some kind of reform, but not, you know, that much, really. Um, I, a bit of me thinks, I don't understand why they actually have to tell you all this stuff now. You know, I mean, <laughs> because because they could just not get round to it and they could get through four, four or five years of not getting around to it and nobody would notice. Nobody, yes. You know, it's weird. It's like other gluttons for punishment kind of coming in and, and watering down stuff that they've said very, very firmly. I mean, um the, the the other one is this U-turn on the 28 billion of green spending, yes. which, I mean, is another one where they're stuck right in the middle of everything because they've got Rachel Reeves, who, uh, if you listen to Richard Murphy on anything, is highly mm -hmm. amusing about Rachel Reeves and his columns in The National are really worth reading on it. Um, but anyway, you know, she 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 seems to be now trying to just skip around and not be pinned down on anything. What strikes me about all of this is here we are just talking about sums, 28 billion I don't know, fuck ends, right? Three billion, it's whatever that is, it's seven times more than the Northern Ireland uh, economy seems to be then, uh, you know, so that it gives you some sort of yardstick for what they're talking about. It's a big sum to most people. It's a bit mind-blowing. Although if you were a kind of, you know, if you were a supplier of PPE back in the day, I don't know, maybe that got you 100 face masks that didn't work. Anyway, 28 <laughs> billion. Um, what is that? You know, I mean, can, can we can we just can we just translate all of this stuff into actions? You know, does that mean yeah. that we're going to have district heating as as normal across the whole UK? It can't because heating's devolved completely to Scotland. Does it mean that we're you know you're you're kind of and what are you including in that? You're including nuclear power because you know Labour is mm -hmm. in favour of that. So that could mean 28 billion could easily swallow getting one of the ones that are sort of looking a bit wobbly, the new nuclear pants, kind of up and running. Um, does it mean what? Insulating every home in the country? You're not going to do that because, you know, Labour is not going to change any of the situation where um, the utilities uh, or the, the you know, let's not call them that. The private companies that have taken you know control of energy have basically been given huge um, incentives to not do insulation at all very well. Um, so it's like, can we just journalists and everybody, please? <laughs> Dig down into these figures anyway. I mean, all that's happening and it's lazy journalism is that, you know, when any of the Labour lot come on, somebody will, you know, say to them, ha ha, gotcha. So you're not going to do 28 billion a year then. And, uh, you know, they'll watch Rachel Reeves dance around it. And, you know, everybody perhaps will start to try and talk about creating a publicly owned energy company, GB Energy. <clears throat> Which, again, I would have the follow up. Hmm, so that'll be what the sixth or seventh or eighth company. I mean, how's that going to mm -hmm. stop people being ripped off by the other five? And it's not going to be an energy producer, as far as I understand. I could be wrong. So, you know, it's like details, folks. 
you know, 28 billion. What are we going to get for 28 billion? And I, I realize I'm ranting away. Um, <clears throat> in fact, weirdly, I ended up doing an interview uh, with for drive time on uh, <laughs> Radio Scotland, but I was waiting slightly. It would have to be said slightly the worse for, you know, the drugs. Prescribed legal drugs have got to add here. You, yeah, you yeah, absolutely. Back you know, to Woodstock. The, sedi- the sedatives and painkillers and such like, you know, <laughs> uh, about district heating. So I'm quite glad that, you know, it's becoming apparent across the piece now that we're just way, out, way, way, way out of line on all of this. Um, but, y- you know, let's get some detail on all of this because people, because people generally who are in the media didn't do engineering degrees or anything, they end up treating the green transition like some unknowable thing that requires a sort of, you know, bioengineering degree to kind of understand. And they don't interrogate it in normal ways. You know, like, what are we going to get for 28 billion, please? Mm. And it might well be there in detail, although if it is, it'll be one of the very few Labour documents that exists in detail. So that's yeah. your job. See, that's your job is to kind of flesh this one out if you get a chance to talk to these guys. And that's what would make a proper decision for people at a general election or whatever, which is doubtless why there's probably not very much detail about it. But I mean, I'm, OK, fair enough. We're not right into a campaign yet, but we'll never, uh, you know, the way that things are going at the moment, the interrogation of what you're planning to do with a place is simply not there. Oh, no. I mean, because and I, I love the fact that I don't know if you saw this, it was put up on Twitter that somebody said uh, that the Labour Party manifesto for the upcoming general election. It was just a sheet of blank paper, you know, because there's mm. been so many. And the, the, the devil, oh, gosh, yeah, I remember this is going back to the school days when I was being told the devil is in the detail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and when you get uh, vague, vague generalisations from Keir Starmer, we're going to change the tone. There's going to be a change in feel. Well, no, no, mate. What are you going to do about the housing crisis, the lack of house building in, 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 in England in particular? What are you going to do about homelessness? And I noticed that when Jeremy Corbyn, when you, if he was asked what his very first action would be when he was on um, the uh, news agents, when he was being interviewed, said his first action, the day one, week one, would be to say my priority is ending homelessness. And you've got to, but again, the detail would have been in that little one. Uh, but that that's the sort of thing that people are after. And this whole thing of just being focusing on change and change and change, at some point, you're absolutely right. Someone somewhere is going to actually say, and what does this change actually mean in reality in well, terms of how especially- people... If you're actually made a sum, you know, if there's a twenty-eight billion pound price tag, that includes things in your basket. What mm. are they? Well, yes. I mean, if you were only going to come out with broad policies about we're going to increase spending, okay, bit vague. Twenty-eight billion—that's a checkout sum. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's just give us yeah. the receipt. What's on it? You know, yeah. that's that's all I want to know. Yep. Well, yeah, and that's, I think we've, we've exercised the most exercised or exorcised. Well, take whichever one you want out of that, folks. And we even managed to get through talking about football in a, in a serious in a serious kind of way. And hopefully, at, uh, uh, and this is where the revolution comes and what goes on behind the scenes. And I, I did love the, the tweet, and I, I get where it was coming from, that were, why didn't we do a daily podcast when, when you, you reveal the fact there's only the two of us. That's it. There's you and me. And, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's who, who does it. But and last, I'm sure whoever suggested that, you know, is probably, well, 
seems to think that there's a cast of millions, which, as you say, yeah. there ain't. Uh, but that if we, you know, thought about it, we could sort of, you know, find the funds from somewhere, you know, because because people have been very generous with the films, mm-hmm. for example. None of that should have been possible to happen. Um, but it's more than what people don't quite get is the amount of emotional energy that goes into yeah, trying to create stuff. And um, in that other people have to notice. Uh, I mean, we were talking before we came on just to shop you, my dear about uh, your, your your new laptop and how long you oh, clung yes. on, yeah, bam, <laughs> yes. to a piece of tin fundamentally that was completely yeah. malfunctioning. Oh, God, and yeah. I was just saying, you know, with what, what you said, 1% functionality or something on a good day yeah. with everything else switched off. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the, the thing is, it's it's a useful reminder to everybody that change is hard. And that people get very attached to things that are familiar. I can remember when I uh, was, you know, left the BBC trying to make a deal with them to take my broken old crap laptop with me, which only worked in the BBC setting. And they just had to sort of almost prize my fingers <laughs> off it and say, Leslie, just let it go. Just let go of it. <laughs> and I mean, Chris at the time was saying to me, Les, it, it's, it's a piece of crap, right? Just honestly, yeah. let it go. We can get you a really mine. nice new one that will work. So, I mean, all of this is a bit, it's, you know, it's a bit of a reminder to people who, who are utterly puzzled at why people don't see the possibilities of massive change, you know, which it would have to be, because what's the point of becoming independent if it isn't change um, in, in a proposition that basically changes quite a lot is just that we attachment you have to familiarity that sits through everything. Yeah. And going through my mind just now is that uh, infamous uh, Labour Party theme tune by Dirim, which is things can only get better. And on that optimistic yeah. note, we'll see you next week, Jones. Thank you.